Welcome to the UN and Organised Crime, a podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Ian Tennant. This series seeks to analyse the UN responses to all types of organised crime through discussions with some of the world's leading experts as we try to unpack diplomatic discussions, policy developments and programme implementation. This episode looks back at the 19th Conference of Parties of the CITES in Panama, which took place in late 2022. We will explore how this multilateral process addresses environmental crimes. CITES stands for the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. It's an international treaty that came into force in 1975. It's designed to regulate the international trade in wildlife and wildlife products. 183 countries and the European Union itself are parties to the convention, meaning that most countries in the world have signed up. One of its main functions is the restrictions it places on trade in specific animals or plants. For example, in Panama last year, out of the 52 proposals put forward by states, 46 were adopted, bringing more than 500 new species under the convention's protection mechanisms, including species of sharks, lizards, turtles, fish, birds, frogs, and more than 100 tree types, all of which have seen a decline in their numbers in recent years. CITES and its implementation are relevant to and have impacts on criminal markets and flows, but it is not a treaty or conference which is focused primarily on addressing transnational organised crime. However, the issue of transnational trafficking and illicit wildlife products has risen up the agenda in recent years in the multilateral fora, including CITES, but also multilateral fora looking at organised crime and justice issues primarily. In recent years, the annual UN Crime Commission, the CCPCJ, and the Conference of Parties of the UN Convention Against Transnational Organised Crime have both repeatedly adopted resolutions calling for increased international cooperation and action on the issue, in recognition of the particularly damaging effects of environmental crimes. For instance, states agreed at last year's CCPCJ to explore the possibility of a new protocol on wildlife crimes to the UN Convention Against Transnational Organised Crime, the UNTOC. In this context, the Global Initiative was active at the CITES Conference of Parties in Panama, focused its engagements on international cooperation and responses to the online illegal wildlife trade. This episode of the UN and Organised Crime will interview Global Initiative team members and other leading experts to explore what was achieved at the conference and what impact it could have on the damaging criminal markets concerned. First of all, I'm going to speak to Simon Hasen. Simon is the Global Initiative's thematic lead on environmental crime. Welcome to the show, Simon. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Simon, the Global Initiative is engaging across the multilateral system, where various manifestations of organised crime are discussed. The CITES is, of course, a trade treaty. So why were we and others there to discuss organised crime? Uh, I think this is a really interesting question about CITES, particularly from my perspective when I compare it to the other conferences where GTAC is engaging. There's actually a really high degree of uh, civil society participation in the CITES COPs. And a lot of that revolves around one of the key aspects of the discussions at the Conference of the Parties, which, as you've mentioned, is around the listing of species. CITES has various appendices, which imply different levels of restriction of trade of endangered species. And there's a huge amount of lobbying that goes on to determine whether species get put on more or less restrictive appendices when they're under threat from trade. 
And that determination is supposed to be based on, on science that is, of course, quite political. It's not actually why GTOC was there, but I think it provides a bit of interesting background on how this trade treaty is relevant to organized crime. And that's because these listings are one of the main bases for which environmental commodities become prohibited. And prohibition is the basis of creating either black or gray markets. Understanding them and responding to them is, is core to the mission of, of GTOC's work. We were actually there to run two side events, which were aimed to inform and support member states to implement the provisions of CITES, whether that's around full prohibition of trade or other uh, degrees of prohibition. One of our side events was about the online trade in endangered species, which we find on widespread on e-commerce and social media platforms, um, and which we think is a very overlooked aspect of regulating trade, which has particular implications for illegal trade. We were there sharing practical tools, which we think can, can support countries' responses to that problem. The other event was to share emerging research on international cooperation, which is absolutely crucial to the work of CITES member states. And that's because a lot of the most damaging and the most clearly illegal trade is international. It crosses various borders and it's impossible for countries to tackle it alone. Thanks, Simon. I'm quite interested in what you were saying there about the online trade in illicit wildlife products. Could you say a bit more about what the latest trends are and what more governments and civil society organisations like ourselves can do to tackle it? Sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the major features of this trade in some sense have remained quite stable for the last few years. And those include the fact that it's very widespread on social media, which is also the part of the internet where it's perhaps hardest to respond for a number of reasons that relate both to very complicated questions of jurisdiction and legal frameworks online, as well as sort of the, the complicated nature of engaging tech companies to deal with the problem, essentially, in a way that's effective and sustainable. We do, however, see uh, sort of an increasing intensification of that process where in many parts of the world we are being told or we are finding in our own monitoring work that the major locus of the problem is in private Facebook groups. And partly this is because deterrent efforts, whether that's taking down ads or that's actual law enforcement work, or just greater scrutiny has sort of chased people off slightly more open parts of social media platforms. But traders have found sort of a, a perfect safe haven in private groups where moderators can restrict entry, where moderators can guide users to use particular language and particular codes which, are, which evade detection by the site's algorithms, and where they can actually streamline a very effective consumer experience where sort of only relevant information about the species is, is transmitted. For example, we found that to be the case in Indonesia, which has huge markets for birds, some aspects of which are completely legal. There are a lot of birds which are safe to trade and legal to trade, which are being traded in high volumes in Indonesia. But there are also highly endangered parrots, which we looked at, and songbirds, which, which many other organizations have looked at. 
We're also seeing a lot of reports from Southeast Asia about rising levels of online trade. I think that the evidence for this is is sort of mixed in terms of having the records because monitoring and record keeping is is complicated about levels of trade online. But um, certainly there's the belief that the exotic pet market, which for many years has been identified as being particularly problematic online for reasons to do with the ways that communities form online, the ways that subcultures form online, and a sort of rising trend across many regions of the world for growing middle-class populations to keep pets and, as a subset of that, to keep exotic pets. In that regard, the most recent CITES COP was interesting because quite a lot of the listings referred to species that are traded in, in the exotic pet world. So would probably a comprehensive response to compliance around the regulation of those trades would, would have to include the online sphere. Thank you very much, Simon. I think you've very articulately described uh, the complexities of the problem, especially with, with regard to the online space and how this is making responses even more difficult to organize. I'm going to move on now to your colleague, Alistair McBeath, who's an analyst at the Global Initiative. Alistair, you were there in Panama and kind of picking up on Simon's points on the importance of different governments and different parts of society trying to work together to unpack these complex issues. You were, you were looking specifically at international cooperation at the conference. What new insights did you find from the events and the engagements you took part in? And what do you think they mean for the future of international cooperation against environmental crime? Yes. Uh, hi, Ian. Uh, so, yes, we all hosted a panel discussion with WCS, who is our partner at the conference for the international cooperation uh, side event. And we explored questions surrounding the current cooperation regime, namely whether it is suitable to respond to the growing threat, what the barriers are to effective cooperation at the practical level and how these can be overcome. So the panel discussion was part of as part of an ongoing project between the GTOC and WCS, which brought together officials from the Anti-Smuggling Bureau of the China Customs General and the Nigerian Customs Service, who is joining us on this podcast, uh, was present in an effort to explore the practical realities of cooperation. So just to give you a quick example of why international cooperation is essential for responding to wildlife crime, Simone touched on it briefly, but if we look at the international trade in shark fin, so the main markets are located in Asia, though shark fin is primarily sourced in waters near the coast of Latin America and Africa. So for an effective response to the trade to be mounted, we need effective cooperation between these two regions. And that presents a, a variety of problems. So the main insights that came from the panel discussion was that international cooperation is not easy. There are many barriers that get in the way, including ones related to language, culture, different legal systems and internal bureaucracy. However, the most important insight that we gained from speaking to the panellists related to the importance of individual officers and effective cooperation regimes and how trust is essential due to the sensitivity of the information and the prevalence of corruption within the legal wildlife trade and environmental crime in general. So we found that successful international investigations and prosecutions were the result of incentivized enforcement officers who trusted their international counterparts and had the ability to sort of bend the international regime so that it worked in their favour and they were not stifled by the system that makes them lose the upper hand. Unfortunately, this reliance on individual officers is not a long-term solution and changes need to be made at the national, regional and global levels to better facilitate cooperation 
However, there are glimmers of hope. There's a recognition within CITES that there needs to be an improvement within the international cooperation regime. We argue that more will need to be done. But there's also a recognition within the untalk of the importance of cooperation and they're pushing for through the UNODC and other bodies to try to facilitate better cooperation frameworks between countries. And there's also been this push from civil society actors to do the same. WCS has been involved in the creation of bilateral frameworks to help cooperation. So there's a lot that needs to be done, but there appears to be this growing realisation that cooperation is an essential part for successful interventions. And that's a good sign. Thank you very much, Alistair. It sounds like you've kind of explored this in some depth with colleagues at the conference, and it sounds quite familiar for those of us who are looking at international cooperation on transnational organised crime more generally, and namely that there are various tools available, but a lot of the onus is on the individual officers and people in charge at the coalface of trying to make these agreements work. And now we're going to move on to hear from one of those people who, who are at the, at the coalface against environmental crime and trying to cooperate internationally. Abim Anin is officer in charge of Nigerian Customs Service Special Wildlife Office. And she's also the World Customs Organization accredited expert and technical and operation advisor in the field of illegal wildlife trade and the national contact point for the World Customs Organization's Regional Intelligence Liaison Office for West Africa. Welcome to the show, Abim. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. What do you see as the major challenges for you as a customs officer in responding effectively to environmental crime in your region? And why are multi-sectoral engagements with governments in other regions and external experts important for you? This opens up um, the part of the job that has not been looked into, most especially by the law enforcement, which is the the part that Ali mentioned, the cooperation side of the work that we do. So for me, the major challenges are coming together of the law enforcement, that talking now about the government sector, the private sector, and both nationally and internationally. So the Coming together of the stakeholders to fight this crime head on has been the major challenge. It looks like everyone has been working in silo, forgetting the fact that we are working against a common enemy. And so for me, the major challenge that I have seen over the years is the cooperation, the level of cooperation that exists within the region. Now the region here, we'll talk about Africa and then we'll talk about the Asian region. So within my own region in Africa, I have seen that the major challenge we have is cooperation at the national level, then being able to cascade this internationally. This hasn't been at the utmost. And so this has been a major issue that I have seen over the years. Thank you very much, Avin. I just wonder, You've described some of the the challenges you face in trying to break down these silos. So what insights did you take from the CITES conference in developments and trends in improving international cooperation to address environmental crime? Practically all the events, the side events, showed that we needed to come together more as stakeholders to be able to do this work that we are all called to do. Yes, there are different sides of the job 
I mean, you have the enforcement side, you have the investigative side, you have the intelligence side, you have the campaign side, you have the training side. All these together have different agencies, different organizations, different individuals in it. Coming together as an entity, coming together as a group, coming together as people with common focus, common aims and objective is what I see that that the events, the, particularly the ones I attended in Panama, the events there showed that it is important that we see that it is not enough to have policies, it is not enough to have regulations, it is not enough to have goals, to have milestones, to have actions and tasks, but more important to understand that we need to be together, we need to stand on the same divide to be able to fight this. How we do these, when we do these, and what we need to do these are things that we all now need to talk about. Most times we look at um, formal cooperation. I think most of the stakeholders think more of formal cooperation when you're thinking about working together. It is beyond formal cooperation. The informal side of the cooperation works faster for me. And this is one of the things that I took out of Panama. Practically every person I came across in Panama at COPS were ready to work. They were ready to assist, to support the work that we do in Nigeria in one way or the other without asking first for an official document. That was key to me. It means that there are quite a number of people that are willing to help, willing to support. We just needed to understand that cooperation needed to start from somewhere, identifying ourselves, identifying the organizations, identifying the right people, the key people to work with in these places. Then we can then start this work. Waiting all the time for multilateral, bilateral agreements to be signed or waiting for MOUs and all that to be signed before we understand that we can as one, two people, three people, four people, individuals who know themselves do this work is one thing that I took away again from Panama, that yes, I can actually continue to work with Allah, I can continue to work with you, I can continue to work with this person without having to wait for the MOUs to be signed. Well, thank you very much, Abim, for um, outlining the approach that you're taking to make sure that you're actually putting into practice what these multilateral agreements, policies and regulations are meant to be designed for. And it's very encouraging to hear to hear how you're reaching out and engaging with people from other countries, other sectors and other parts of other parts of your governments as well. We're going to move now from government stakeholder to somebody who's looking really at the effects of environmental crimes on communities um, at the local level. Kumar Padel is a conservation scholar from Nepal. For over 10 years, he has worked to protect threatened wildlife from illegal harvesting and trade. He leads a conservation non-profit organization called Greenhood Nepal. He's just completed his year as a fellow under the Global Initiatives Resilience Fund, which in 2022 focused on environmental crime. Kumar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ian, for having me today. You're very welcome. Um, Kumar, you've investigated the impacts of environmental crime on specific communities in your country. In your view, do engagements like the CITES conference pay enough attention to the grassroots level experience of environmental crime? 
And what more can civil society organizations do to raise the profile of these issues? Yeah, thank you for this very interesting question. As you have mentioned earlier, I have worked extensively with different communities and enforcement authorities in Nepal and South Asia, which has shaped my understanding of the impacts of environmental crime on the local communities and the gap between what happens in the corps and what happens actually on the ground. Over the last decade, so my research has led me to interact closely with people from the local community who are arrested or in prison for wildlife crimes. Transportation workers like container driver who drive across international borders, transporting legal goods and also illegal goods. Custom and enforcement officials who are trying to regulate the trade within the country and across the borders. Also, I have worked closely with the local communities who are involved in harvesting and trading sites listed medicine plants and are living with the species like pangolins. And my views on most recent COP in Panama is that many more species are included in scientists' listing, including less known species and trees, which is very encouraging and excellent job. But just talking at COP or making commitments doesn't help, as we have seen. So we need to find ways to translate those uh, big commitments into solid actions on the ground to regulate the wildlife trade. Uh, for example, wildlife harvester in rural Nepal Himalay doesn't know and care about scientists and doesn't understand what the rules are and where the species trade go. It's not only local communities, but even sometimes the officials on the ground are unable to identify the species in trade. Much of the illegal trade happens in a plain sight because neither the local communities nor the officials know that these species are actually in situs and what are the measures that should be taken. So in this kind of background, I should also mention that Nepal is home to world's many incredible and threatened wildlife and where also is a major transit for international wildlife trade. But the capacity and awareness is so limited that we don't even have a detailed discussion between the government and the stakeholder to present a comprehensive and a science-informed position at COP. So the site scope is, I think it's fair to say, mostly dominated by the Global North governments and the big international organizations. But the civil society organization working on the ground often in the Global South, often doesn't get the opportunity to participate in such discussions and present their perspective, which also hinders not only to communicate the message from this kind of cope, but also to translate those commitments and resolution to actions on the ground. And while implementing the convention like the CITES, so there are some key gaps which hinders the actual implementation and effectiveness of this kind of resolution. And those are, one is like identifying the species in trade, another is in the reporting of the trade from the local level to the national and also to the CITES authorities. And another one is the disseminating the information about these species, the commitments from the higher level to the local level, and also from the local level to the higher level. So because of these gaps, what I think is what is aggregate in the core doesn't always reflect on the ground. And if I have to say something about the what actually civil society organization like Elite Greenhood Nepal can do or some other agencies can help in this is then this is something a little bit tricky. Like at Greenhood, we are understanding and researching species that are most threatened but neglected in conservation priorities. We are helping the enforcement agencies to identify the species in trade, helping the people to understand sites on the ground 
So the civil society organization like ours can support the government to facilitate the process, reach out to the communities, and also keep the government accountable. But to do these all the things, civil society organizations from the ground or the communities who are living with wildlife, they should get the access to the this kind of the broader global policy discussions. And also there is a high time to help them to enhance their capacities so that they can understand these processes, these commitments, and communicate those things to the communities to implement it. Thank you very much, Kumar, for raising those really important perspectives from a, a grassroots level organization and you know really explaining what it means to be working on environmental crime and to be trying to help with the implementation of these conventions. Um, you mentioned that it is difficult to get access to these uh, these conferences, which can be dominated by the Global North. But if I could ask you if you had one message for the CITES community, or in fact, any multilateral community looking at this these issues, what would your one top message be to them? Yeah, I think that my message would be, we have already made a really good progress. So all of the government together and making some really good commitment to protect these species and regulate the trade. But those things... We need to work on how we can take them on the ground, how to enhance the capacity of the people who are working on the different layers of the governance. So I think we need to really think about to enhance the capacities on the ground so that we can actually implement these all the shared commitments. Thank you very much, Kumar. I'd like to thank you and all the other guests who've spoken today, Simon, Alistair, Abim, and you. Kumar for bringing a really diverse set of perspectives um, to the to our audience to help us understand what happened at the CITES conference in Panama, what the latest developments are, and what we can do as different stakeholders in trying to make sure that it has impacts on the criminal markets concerned, both at the international level and also at the local level. And I think one of the common things that everybody's spoken about is that there are good agreements, there are gaps in the legal framework, but governments have come a long way in making these agreements at the political level. But there's more that needs to be done in making them work. There's more that needs to be done in breaking down silos between different groups of stakeholders, between different countries. And there's more to be done to increase coordination and cooperation between civil society and governments and the multilateral system. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the UN and Organised Crime, a podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Ian Tennant.